welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series eight and episode one, entitled Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're turning now to John's Gospel and we're going to be studying in John chapter seven, verses one to twenty-four. Well, this is the beginning of a new series. The context changes, the situation changes. We're now going to be focusing on events uh, in Jerusalem for the next few episodes as recorded in John's Gospel. But before we get into that, let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the story. Those of you who followed Series 7 will know that this is a series which describes a transition in Jesus' ministry from his very fruitful years uh, of ministry in Galilee, described uh, in series three, four, five, and six. And that period of time is coming to an end. Series seven describes some very key moments in which uh, Jesus decides that he's now going to move his focus away from Galilee. He's going to head for Jerusalem. And in one of his visits to Jerusalem, uh, the final one, there will be a confrontation Uh, He warns his disciples he'll be suffering, he'll even die, and he'll rise again from the dead. Uh, These events are described in series seven during the time that Jesus took his disciples aside to the town outside Galilee called Caesarea Philippi, where he had conversations with them in that area. And he also uh, appeared in a transformed, glorious way to Peter, James and John, Uh, during the episode known as the Transfiguration, uh, where he spoke with Moses and Elijah, who came back on this earth for that brief moment. That's described in Matthew 17 and parallel passages. And during uh, the Transfiguration, Jesus makes it clear in his discussion with Moses and Elijah, which Peter, James and John overhear, that he is going to go to Jerusalem and bring about his departure, in other words, the end of his life and his return to heavenly glory. This is very clearly stated in Luke's account. And in our last episode, we noticed um, uh, Luke describing the fact that Jesus is going to be leaving Galilee and traveling south through Samaria down to Jerusalem. Uh, So that's the context. Things are changing, things are moving. And the second half of Jesus' ministry is now Uh, coming in view. Uh, It won't be based in Galilee. He won't be returning to Galilee. He'll be focusing his attention on areas like Samaria in the centre of the country, Judea, the southern heartland of the Jewish nation, and particularly on the city of Jerusalem, where the story will come to a great conclusion and climax at the end of his life and in his resurrection. Now, we're turning to John's Gospel And it's important to remember when looking at John's Gospel, as we've mentioned before, when we've been uh, studying some early events described by John, that he uh, almost certainly wrote his Gospel last. He has before him, when he writes, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and uh, he is very selective in the events that he describes. And so we have to think carefully as to how John fits together with the other three Gospels, known as the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which fit together a bit more closely and tell a more similar story. John, quite deliberately, um, doesn't repeat many things that are said in the Synoptic Gospels. 
Now, we understand the Gospel of John to be written by John the Apostle, an eyewitness to the events. And he chooses, amongst other things, to focus on events that happened in Jerusalem, which are not recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So much of John's material uh, describes things that take place in Jerusalem, and that's what we're going to find here. We know that Jesus is heading for Jerusalem in the general sense, according to uh, the description given in Luke chapter 9, which we uh, discussed more fully in the last episode, episode 11 of series 7. But John describes here um, an event happening at the same time where Jesus makes a brief visit to Jerusalem, but this is not the ultimate visit. This is not the moment where he wants to bring about a confrontation with the religious authorities, as implied by uh, words stated by Jesus and recorded in Luke chapter 9. Jesus, on this occasion, makes a brief and guarded appearance in Jerusalem. You'll see the context as uh, we read the account. And he does this um, on more than one occasion. We're going to read the text in a moment, uh, John 7. And we're going to read the first half of the text and then we're going to see what we find in Jerusalem on this particular occasion. So let's turn to John 7 verses 1 to 13, the first half of our passage today. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Let's think for a moment about the Feast of Tabernacles. In Judaism at this time, based on the Old Testament and the law of Moses, there were three main religious festivals every single year. They're all mentioned in the Gospels. The Feast of Passover is the first one, which took place in March or April. And this one was focused on remembering the Exodus, the event by which the Jewish nation escaped suddenly and miraculously from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. 
Then in May or June came the second great festival, Pentecost, which celebrates the giving of the Jewish law to Moses, particularly. Then in the autumn, in September or October, comes the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates the years the Jews spent in the wilderness. Forty years were spent in the Sinai Desert and that area between the time that they left Egypt and the time that they entered the Promised Land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua. And these years saw the miraculous provision of God and also some judgment of God on the Jewish people uh, which held them up in their process and the time passed and a new generation had to come before they entered the promised land. However, the Feast of Tabernacles used a particular symbol which was that many people would uh, make temporary tent-like structures either out of um, material or out of wood and branches and they would place them on the roof of their house or on open land or near their homes or near the place that they were staying if they were visiting the city uh, and they would stay in those during the course of some or all of the Feast of Tabernacles as a sign that they remembered what it was like for the Jewish people to be living in tents for those 40 years. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was also a harvest festival. It was called in Exodus 23:16 the festival of ingathering. So it also celebrated the harvest and it also celebrated the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the people. Contemporary writers at the time of Jesus or just afterwards said that it was in fact the most popular of the religious festivals. And therefore in Jerusalem when the Feast of Tabernacles was taking place, there would be huge crowds coming from all over the country and from Jews living in other countries who would travel internationally to get there for the feast, which lasted seven days, and they'd stay as much of the feast as they could. Now, that's one aspect of the story that we need to just keep in mind. Another aspect is something a bit more subtle. What was the atmosphere like in Jerusalem, particularly concerning Jesus and his ministry. Well, John records that this is the third visit that Jesus makes to the city. You'll remember what I said a few minutes earlier when I said John highlights Jesus's visits to Jerusalem, which are largely um, unmentioned in the other three Gospels, apart from the final one, uh, where Jesus enters into conflict and, uh, and then he's crucified and, and raised again from the dead. But John adds in a number of these accounts to give another dimension of the ministry of Jesus, which wouldn't be known to people who just encountered him in Galilee in his popular ministry in the north of the country. Jesus visits rarely for uh, different festivals, but in John 2... We have the first account of Jesus visiting, which we studied in an earlier episode. But you'll, you may remember from that, that on that occasion, he went into the Jewish temple, the very heart of Judaism, and he confronted the traders operating there, selling animals for the sacrificial system and exchanging uh, coins and making money out of that process. 
He confronted them, he turned their tables over and he became temporarily very angry with them. So even the very first time that Jesus visited Jerusalem in his public ministry, there was a direct confrontation with the religious authorities, which put them on the defensive and made them very suspicious and hostile to him. Then in John chapter 5, we see an account of the second visit of Jesus to Jerusalem. And on this occasion, he performs a miracle in a place called the Pool of Bethesda. Um, this is recorded in John chapter 5, and we've studied it in an earlier episode. You may want to refer back to it. And in that occasion, Jesus picks out a man who is a long-term uh, disabled visitor to the Pool of Bethesda. And he went there because there was a sort of... Uh, a, rep a superstitious reputation that this this water would sometimes be stirred miraculously and people would get healed. Uh, so people went there uh, hoping to find healing and therapy. Well, he'd been disabled for uh, over 30 years, according to the text, and Jesus picks him out and heals him on the Sabbath day, significantly. This then provokes a confrontation with the religious authorities who say you can't work on the sabbath day you can't do things like healing on the sabbath day and that becomes the story of john chapter five now if we keep those two things in mind here we have the third visit we have a difficult atmosphere in the city it's dominated by the religious establishment the ruling council whom i've mentioned a number of times before they're called the sanhedrin there were 70 men in that group. It was chaired by the high priest. A number of other priests were in that group. Also, a number of other members of leading religious groups like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who we've encountered quite a number of times already in telling the life of Jesus. And this group was already hostile to Jesus and had already come to at least an informal judgment that he was a false messiah. They might have even formalised it. And they certainly formalised it when they tried Jesus um, at the end of his life. And they claimed that he was committing blasphemy by claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, we can understand from the text they already had this opinion at this particular time. So they were hostile. They were very dominant in their influence over all the people coming to Jerusalem, the residents and the visitors, the people coming to the temple, they were teaching, they were dealing with the sacrificial system. They were hugely influential and they'd already uh, been speaking very firmly against Jesus. They didn't like his previous two visits and they didn't like him coming back again on this occasion. Now, Jesus went because of the, partly because of the provocation of his brothers, which is very interesting. His brothers didn't believe in him and they said, you need to make a show of force and strength in Jerusalem. Try and convince Jerusalem of uh, what you've convinced the people here in Galilee, they said rather cynically to Jesus. And they were going up as a, as a family unit to the festival. They said, Jesus, come with us, do some miracles Turn people's minds around, make them all believe that you're the Messiah. But John is quite clear. His brothers did not believe in him at this time in their lives. Jesus, however, according to this account, travelled to the Feast of Tabernacles a little bit later than the others, secretly, privately, discreetly, 
halfway through events. But halfway through the festival, he becomes public. Let's read verse 14 to 24, the second half of our passage today. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the, the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. And you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but came from the patriarchs, you circumcised a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and instead judge correctly. Jesus starts here teaching in the temple uh, in order to make his presence felt. And by the way, the temple had a huge compound um, and a huge outer court where people could um, uh, walk around freely. They could, uh, they could preach, they could teach, they could share. There was just a huge amount of room so Jesus could easily take up a position there, which he did um, later on in other visits to Jerusalem, as we'll see later. But he makes a statement. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So we're dealing here with the question of the authority of Jesus' teaching. Is it self-promotion? Is it human tradition, like the Jewish teaching very often was? Or rather, did it come directly from God's authority? Jesus claims that his teaching comes directly from God's authority. And he then goes on to imply that those people who are seeking the truth and seeking out the Messiah will intuitively know that his teaching is authentic. Verse 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So the genuine seeker seeking to do the will of God will intuitively know that the teaching of Jesus is authentic. Now this has been the experience of countless people through the centuries. As they've engaged with the teaching of Jesus, and as they are seeking to find the truth about God, many people have just come to an inner intuitive conviction that this man is authentic. He is what he says he is. It's an inner knowing that is, in fact, described later on in the New Testament as the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
Now the crowd gets angry, accusing him of being demonized, influenced by demonic forces. Now that might sound to us to be very dramatic and very hostile and very sudden. Well, it's not that sudden. Because as we've discovered in an earlier episode, several episodes indeed, but particularly when we looked at Matthew 12 and a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees in uh, Galilee, we find that the Pharisees, who represent the view of the religious authorities in Jerusalem pretty accurately, and some of them are on the Sanhedrin Council themselves, the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 24, when speaking about Jesus's miraculous powers, say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. They ascribe his power to demonic forces, to a satanic influence in his life. So this conversation about the source of Jesus' power has been going on for some time. It came from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. The conversation played out on a number of occasions in Galilee when the Pharisees were following Jesus round. And so it's not surprising that the crowd in Jerusalem are reiterating this opinion, which has been fed to them by the religious leaders in the city. Jesus then goes on uh, in the final section to refer back to the miracle of John 5 the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Verse 21, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. So they remembered that miracle. It was still being discussed. And Jesus refers to it again. It comes up in John chapter 5, as we've mentioned. And it was a remarkable miracle because a man who had been an invalid, according to John 5 verse 5, for 38 years, um, was immediately healed. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And then he traveled around the city of Jerusalem, talking to the religious authorities and the crowds, explaining that he had been healed miraculously. So Jesus said, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. But he then goes on to point out that then that miracle became controversial not just a matter of amazement, but a matter of controversy, because the day that he performed that miracle happened to be the Jewish Sabbath day. In our earlier episodes, while uh, discussing Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we've noticed quite a number of times that the issue of the Jewish Sabbath has become controversial between Jesus and his opponents. He's healed on the Sabbath before. And on the Sabbath law, according to the uh, law of Moses, the Jews should rest from their work, focus on family and worship and rest for one day in seven. This became the Jewish Sabbath and is now uh, the Saturday of our modern week. The religious authorities took that basic command not to work and they applied it in an overzealous and overliteral way to Jesus by saying that when he heals someone he's working whereas Jesus claimed against them that that wasn't the intention of the law at all 
No, the law was there to help them rest from their agricultural work, from their commercial work, from their business of life. And Jesus wasn't doing the business of life when he was healing the sick. He was doing divine miracles. He was blessing people. He was doing a work of mercy. And so he's argued in the past, and it's implied in the text here, that they've got their understanding of the law wrong and they've completely misjudged his intention um, in healing on the Sabbath. And they've accused him wrongly of breaking the law. Jesus obeyed the law of Moses in every way that was appropriate for him to obey uh, the law in his role and in his circumstances. Every applicable law he obeyed, but he did not accept the authority of subsequent Jewish tradition, which tried to interpret and develop the law and created hundreds and hundreds of extra laws, particularly around um, issues like the Sabbath and created loads and loads of regulations which never appeared in the Old Testament. Jesus describes that as human tradition, and he said that he's not going to obey that. And that is part of the debate that's going on um, in this particular context. Jesus even points out that the pattern of circumcising infant children on the eighth day um, breaks the Sabbath law if that eighth day happens to fall on the Sabbath day. That's a bit of a technicality concerning a practice that was happening at the time, which Jesus comments on by comparison. He basically says, you're not obeying the law accurately, and you're wrongly accusing me of breaking the law when I'm not even breaking it in the first place by healing on the Sabbath, as he had done in John 5 at the Pool of Bethesda with the invalid of 38 years standing. Now, the atmosphere in Jerusalem is really difficult for Jesus. And every time he goes there, there's a controversy and there's a genuine risk to his person, his security and even his life. We've noticed even in the episode in John 5, the Jews were very, very hostile after the healing of this man and his life was in danger. They were looking for ways to kill him. We're going to find this theme uh, working out uh, several more times in Jesus' experience of being in Jerusalem. He's only in Jerusalem here just for a very short period of time, uh, just a few days, and he will remove himself very quickly from the city and then get back onto his uh, mission, which is going through Samaria and Judea and travelling around in the central and southern parts of the country, according to what Luke has told us in Luke 9 in our last episode, series 7 and episode 11. Now, there's more to be said about this uh, incident because the story continues, and that will be the topic of our next episode. Some reflections to conclude. Jesus faced a tough family situation for a start. His brothers didn't believe in him. They were setting him up for a conflict by suggesting that he made a show of strength in Jerusalem, which would have provoked the authorities to act against him. That was difficult. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. I wonder if we've had that experience where those close to us don't really believe or even oppose the things that we stand for. Well, we need to take encouragement from the example of Jesus. He loved his family, loved those close to him, 
But even if they disagreed with him, he always followed what he knew to be the right thing. Courage was shown by Jesus in that respect. But the courage required for that was nothing compared with the courage required to face the hostile environment of Jerusalem where the religious leaders were watching him, plotting against him, hoping to get rid of him and feeding negative propaganda to the crowds. And the crowds could turn volatile very quickly. They could pick up stones to stone him. They could chase him out the temple compound. They could do all sorts of things to him. Jesus showed incredible courage. But his courage came from his obedience to his father and to the certainty that he was in the right place doing the right thing. We'll continue this story uh, in our next episode. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.